Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. So we're in a Sermon on the Mount series. We started a couple weeks ago. If you have a Bible, go to Matthew. We're just going to dive in. I'll cut the introduction for the sake of time. Um, But hey, we only have one service, so I can go as long as I want. Except the kids. Yeah, don't forget the kids. Michael, I hear you, Pastor. I got you. Pastor Michael leaves. Don't forget the kids. 11.30, quick stop, go get the children and bring them here. And and then let's just pray for people who are here. You can do that. Permission granted. If you want to go grab your kids and let them experience ministry time, go do it. That's how they're going to learn to pray for the sick, right? Not because you had this great experience without them, but because you went and grabbed them and they get to pray for the people that you're praying for. That's what we need. So that by the time they get to middle school, they have no other worldview other than, no, God heals. He answers my prayers. Yeah, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. I was talking to Zach yesterday. I was telling him, I'm like, I love when we're preaching verse by verse through the Bible because it's so easy for me as a preacher. I don't have to be creative. It's Jesus' words. It's enough. 
I, don't, I just get to read it, and if all I did was read this part, it would be enough. We could end our sermon and be done. But maybe the Lord will speak in, through me. We'll see. <laughs> Verse 11, let's, let's, let's pick up where we left off. All right, so check this out. So he ends the Beatitudes, the Blesseds, and he says, blessed are you when people insult you, <laughs> persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, let's just, let's just start there, church. One thing that Jesus, is, Jesus promises and one thing that's promised in the scripture is that you will experience hard times because you follow Jesus. Jesus promises his little community of followers in this moment that they, like the Old Testament prophets who went before them, will be persecuted. Why are you here if you know that's true? Why are you sitting here if you know hard times will come? Persecution is promised from Jesus for all who follow him. Why are you here then? Is it convenient to be persecuted? Is it great to be insulted for your orthodox beliefs, which are counter to culture? Do you feel that there's a reason why you are here? Because Jesus sees Peter as he's speaking this, and he knows that Peter's going to die in Rome, upside down on the cross, according to church tradition. James will get his head cut off. John will grow old, but he'll be tortured along the way. Millions of Christians will be killed because of the Roman Empire within the first 200, or sorry, yeah, 200 years of the church, and about 150,000 Christians will die every day because of persecution, every year, excuse me, because of persecution in modern times. Christians are the most persecuted people on earth. Now, I'm talking about real persecution, by the way. I'm not talking about insults on Facebook or what you can't go do because you can't wear something or not wear something. I'm talking about real persecution, like dying because of your beliefs, because you believe Jesus is Lord, and you're not allowed to believe that in certain places, and they kill you for it. That's what's promised by Jesus. So the question I have for you, why, what are you doing here? <laughs> Think about that for a moment. Is this the kind of Christianity you believe in? Or has it become something else? He promises his followers that they will experience persecution. So what are we going to do? You know what? This is what we're going to do. We're going to be persecuted. I have an idea. Let us rally together political power and legislate against those who will persecute us. I'm all for voting our values and convictions while we can. But that's not the solution to persecution. Neither is buying a bunker somewhere, stocking up on ammo. <laughs> California bought over 900,000 handguns this year alone, 65% increased in gun ownership because of COVID. The answer isn't more weapons. And let me just say that that's a biblical statement because we're going to get to the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about violence and what we're supposed to do with violence. So that's not the solution. Should we just become monastic tribe and escape into the mountains or to Montana? I just went to Montana. God bless Montana. 
buy 20 acres on, on land and just escape the world and sing our hymns together and pre- preserve this thing we got going here? Should we just get sad, depressed? Should we just live life like nothing matters and fit right in? And maybe we'll, we'll just look like culture enough they'll never know we're really followers of Jesus. I think that's the way of the church in America, by the way, the last one. I guess all of them are. So what do we do? Jesus gives us the solution. Let's read Matthew chapter five. So this is the promise. You're gonna be persecuted. You're gonna be insulted. Get used to it. And then he says this. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt, if the salt loses its saltiness, which is a tongue twister in the Greek and Aramaic, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown away and trampled underfoot. What are you gonna do when hard times come? What should you do, church? Well, he gives you a picture. His followers are to be salt of the earth, salt. And there's three ideas of what this is, and I think Jesus means all of them. First, salt is used for purification purposes. It purifies meat for sacrifice. Salt is seen as this purification, bringing out of purity. The second thing salt does is it adds flavor, and my wife knows this well. How many of you love salt on everything? My kids already do this. I never knew to add salt to anything until I got married. And my four-year-old's like, you need more salt, and it's a little too much most of the time. (laughs) It brings out the best. Think about that. Disciples are to be men and women who bring purity to culture. Followers of Jesus are to bring out the best of culture, who bring out the good, the beautiful, the tasting, the things that taste good. We are to bring out better flavor of society and the world around us. And the last is preservation. It's used for preserving. When you didn't have ice boxes or refrigerator or Yeti, you added a lot of salt to that meat to preserve it. So when, when Jesus says to his little tribe of, of new followers, remember who they were, they were the least likely kinds of people to be considered religious. They were the nobodies, the, the taxed and oppressed. They were the meek. They were, uh, they were sinners and tax collectors. They were demon-possessed, and they were invalids and paralytics, according to the text right before the Sermon on the Mount. Despised, in other words. And Jesus says, no, 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 you guys are gonna bring out the purity of society. You're gonna bring out the flavor. You're gonna bring out the good things. You're gonna hold culture together, which for 2,000 years, I can say, if you study history, Christianity has done these things. Monastic movement preserved Christianity and culture during the Dark Ages. Renaissance comes out of this, um, the, the church funding art and beauty. Obviously, it went sideways. But throughout history, that we see um, that there was a time in the 1800s with William Wilberforce and, and John, the Wesley brothers, there was a time where uh, social reformation took place where it became popular, popularized to do good to others, to not get drunk. This is what happened in the UK because of the gospel and because of Christianity. It brought about preservation. I love what Tim Keller writes. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around in this way. 
The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money. So the question you should be asking is, as you are permeating life at the gym, at the workplace, at the coffee shop, at restaurants, at school, at your home, in society, everywhere you go, are you bringing about purity? Are you pulling out the best? Are you preserving what is good and true around you? This is what you're called to be. This is your purpose, church. Your purpose is to be salt. And if you aren't salt, well, what good are you then, church? This is what Jesus is saying. It's like I had this watch. It was a nice Timex black watch. I liked it. And it broke. Replaced the battery. Still didn't work. But I still wore it. I was wearing it. People would ask me for the time, and I'd pull out my phone. And they're like, what? What is a watch that doesn't work? A bracelet. It's not a watch. What good is salt if it doesn't preserve and bring flavor and purify? Just trample on it. He keeps going. Verse 11. I'm sorry. uh, I'll get it right one day. Uh, Oh, no, I got another quote. I don't know if I want to use it. Let's just skip it. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. It says this. So he keeps going. Remember, who he's talking to. Context matters. You are the light of the world. Now, if you heard this in the first century and you were Jewish, that is a significant statement. There's only one group that is known as the light of the world. And he goes... A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So in the Old Testament, Israel was considered the light of the world. The people of God that were freed from Egypt as slaves, set apart as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, were commissioned with the vocation of being a light to the world. And now Jesus says to his group of followers, this new community of God, you are to fulfill the vocation of Israel. This is now your task Demon-possessed, ex-demon-possessed people, ex-paralytics, tax collectors, fishermen, nobodies. You are to take on the task of being a light to the nations, which is what Israel was called to be. According to Isaiah chapter 2 and chapter 4, according to Exodus, we see this language that they are called to be a light into the world. And then he uses this image like a town on the hill. Right, it says, uh, cannot be hidden. Now, what's interesting about that is if, uh, if you were traveling in the ancient Near East at the time of Jesus, you would travel at night because of the heat of the day. And if you were traveling, you would use the, the towns on a hill and the light that, that was coming from those towns for direction. There's a town over here you could see, and there's a town over there. And the, the towns on a hill that were lit up at night were used as a navigation. They're your GPS 
on where you're trying to go. And essentially saying, this is what you are to be as a follower of Jesus. You are to help be signposts for what we're going towards, which is Jesus and the resurrection and new creation. Church, this is your task. To live as salt and to be light in the world. And so if the world is getting darker, who's not doing their job? We keep thinking that it's because of culture, it's because of government, it's because of society, it's because of the industry, you name it, but the church is to blame. If the world's gonna get lighter, it's because we stepped out into the world as light. Of course that's how they're gonna operate. They're covered in darkness. They don't know any better. You, we should expect the, the world to act like the world, but church, we gotta stop expecting the church to act like the world. I don't know about you, but this last year and a half made me not wanna be a Christian anymore. Anyone else struggling with association problems? That Jesus needs new PR. That's on you. That's on us. No one else is gonna change the reputation of the church, unless we say, not on my watch. I'm in. This is what Jesus is saying to his followers, that the point is that you're to be visible in the world. As followers of Jesus, the whole point of salt and light is that you are to be put on display for the world to see that there is a good and beautiful God, and he looks a little bit like you, and a little bit like you, and a little bit like us together. Yes, we have problems. Yes, we sin. Yes, we lose our temper. Yes, we don't say the right thing at the right moment. Yes, we stumble. But in that, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we still bring out the best. We still point people with the light that is reflected in us. In the pre-service prayer, my, my brother Brian was talking about uh, this image that's used by N.T. Wright, and he talks about the Genesis uh, imagery of being made in the image of God is that we are to reflect as a mirror. God shines his image into us, and as a mirror, we are designed, according to Genesis 1 and 2, to reflect God's image into the world. But when our mirror is distorted by all sorts of reasons, for all sorts of reasons, we reflect distortion back into creation. So in other words, this, this text what Jesus is doing is just saying, hey, let's be human again. Let's learn how to be human again. Uh, in his book, To Change the World, James Davidson Hunter says, to be Christian is to be obliged to engage the world pursuing God's restorative purposes all, over all of life. And the problem is, I think, with many of us is we think that the way we are to engage in the world is through this through gatherings, or through being told what to do on Instagram, or being given advice on how to navigate your workplace, but the reality is um, you are, are supposed to be filled up, encouraged, educated, and um, uh, um, taught and discipled in this context for the sake of the mission and the ministry God has given you wherever you are. 
So our task here is not to say this is where it's going to get brighter and brighter. Our task here is to give you the tools and the encouragement to go back into the front lines, which is your nine to five Monday through Saturday, and be that salt and light wherever you find yourself. You're all called to ministry. You're all full-time ministers of the gospel. And for whatever reason, the, the way we've designed church in, the, in America, in the United States and in the West, is to think that, no, this is what the paid staff members do for us. That's not what it's for. My task is to help you be a disciple of Jesus so that you die well. And so that when you run your race, you're met in heaven saying, hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. I love this quote, it's quite long, but I wanna just highlight the point. By the late second century, many Christian communities had decided that outsiders, the non-Christians, could not be admitted to their worship services. The Christians determined that it was not appropriate for outsiders to be admitted to the power-filled center of their worship, prayer, and the Eucharist, the communion. At the second century, as it progressed, there were enough experiences of persecution to persuade the Christians in Athens that if lying informers were allowed into their services, the result might be our slaughter. So the growth of the Christian communities, which was a result of their visibly interesting behavior, was rooted in the parts of their life that were invisible, inaccessible to outsiders. Now, look at this. Pagans could observe Christians who were economically compassionate and say, look, But pagans could not, however, observe a Christian worship service and say, look. And yet I contend, this author says, that it was uh, the Christians' invisible activities that enabled their visible lifestyle to be attractive. In other words, he'll go on. These invisible activities um, were the sine non of the growth of the church in the Roman Empire. It was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders. It was Christians who attracted them. And the outsiders found the Christians attractive because of their Christian lifestyle and practices, which intentional discipleship and worship had formed. This is a historian writing about the early growth of the Christian church. And in summary, he's saying there was a point in church history where outsiders, non-Christians, could not come to something like this. That the only way they became Christian is by observing your lifestyle characteristics and said, I want to be more like you. And then after a season of catechism, of process into discipleship, they were let into the power-filled worship space of gatherings like this. Isn't that interesting? And we think if we could just make this seeker-friendly, we might change the world around us, but we know based on the history that it's not working anymore. What will work? Your transformed life transforming the lives around you. We are called to be salt, we are called to be light, and we are called to transform the world around us. This is the why we are here, church. This is what he sets before us. And then I wanna read the next part of the passage and give us the how. How do we actually do this? You guys good? You guys want me to stop? I I dare you to say yes. I just wanna see. (laughs) Yeah, please stop. So he says, this is the why. This is what you're gonna do, be salt and light. And then he says, do, you, do not think, verse 17, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which is a shorthand for saying all of the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others according, accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, this text, it's always frustrated me because I just taught last week that to enter into the kingdom of God, the bar is set here. It's probably more, more like here. That no matter what you do, God loves you as you are and not as you should be. The kingdom's not built on performance. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't prove yourself worthy enough. You just get to receive it. So everyone's welcomed into the kingdom of God. And now he says, now that you're in your righteousness, you've seen the Pharisees and their 2,000 laws they follow. Your righteousness has to be greater. It has to surpass the most religious folks that were alive during the time of Jesus. Sounds like um, a contradiction, doesn't it? But what's even more fascinating is how offensive this teaching is to anyone that was religious at the time. It's absolutely crazy. He first says, I just wanna give you a quick summary of this text, these few verses. The first thing Jesus says is Jesus fulfills the Torah and the prophets. He himself fulfills the Old Testament. This would have been so offensive to anyone listening because yeah, you could say things like, oh, I can do miracles like Elijah, and I can do miracles like Moses. I can predict the future like Isaiah, but to say that he is the fulfillment of the Torah, of the prophets of the Old Testament, that was crazy and I just wanna help you make sense of this because as people argue that Jesus was just a good teacher, well if you read this text, he's gotta be a liar or he's telling the truth because this teaching is saying that he fulfills the entire Old Testament and any Jewish person would be offended by such a claim. So Jesus can't just be a good teacher from this teaching because he's making a very controversial statement saying that in his existence, he is the embodiment and fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Are you with me? The second thing is that everything in the Torah is true. This is his second claim in this teaching. Not only does he fulfill the Old Testament, but he's saying everything in the Torah in the Old Testament is true. The third thing he says is that everything must be observed because it's true and because he's the fulfillment of it. And then he says something that is probably the most significant. He says, your obedience must surpass the experts. Because he's the fulfillment, because everything in the Torah is true, because everything must be observed, your obedience must be greater than the religious teachers of Jesus' day. Scott McKnight puts it this way. If that statement by Jesus is not clear enough, Jesus makes it more concrete by comparing his followers to existing religious groups. In their righteousness, and here he means behavior that conforms to the will of God as taught by Jesus, or as N.T. Wright captures it in his translation, your covenant behavior does not greatly, if it does not greatly surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they will never enter, uh, never ever enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So Jesus is making it clear as followers that we are now not just called and commissioned to be salt and light, but now we have to live in this covenantal faithfulness to the way of Jesus, to the words of Jesus that produce a new kind of righteousness that pushes us beyond the most religious folks of his day. Now, remember who the people he's talking to are. They're tax collectors, they're prostitutes. They're people without a spiritual bone in the body. And his expectation that these people will have a kind of lifestyle, righteousness, justice, peace, right relationship with the people around him, that it will, it will surpass those in Jesus' day who are seen as religious. And I, I can't overemphasize this teaching. It's very challenging for me to express, but what you have to see is this statement he makes, he will now um, not theorize about as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount, excuse me, he will actually confront all sorts of things. When he claims to have righteousness greater than those religious folks, he gets very specific. He plunges into the guts of human existence, if you will. He's gonna talk about raging anger, contempt, hatred, obsessive lust. He'll talk about divorce, verbal manipulation, revenge, slapping, suing, cursing, coercing, and begging. He'll talk about the real kinds of stuff we all deal with as humans, and he will show us how to live an alternative way here and now. Not just when we die and go to heaven and we don't deal with inappropriate anger. He wants to give us tools here and now to help us with all of those things. Can I get an amen? This is what we're invited into, church, as followers of Jesus, as disciples. And let me just add, this is his strategy for changing the world. His strategy for changing the world is that you become more like him. And as you become more like him, you become more fully yourself. You become more fully alive. And as these things that we'll talk about begin to get worked out through the power of the Holy Spirit and practice, you, wherever you go, become salt and light to the world around you. His strategy is not to talk about some big evangelistic campaign where we get thousands of people to worship so we can have revival. Revival begins with you. Revival begins with the condition of your heart and life, with your anger, with your lust, with your greed, with your misplacement of trust. It starts with the way you interact with your loved ones, with your spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers, with that roommate who takes your food. It starts there. That's where salt begins. That's where light begins. And we can't miss that. That's the big thing. Because if you follow him into those places, yes, even your, uh, your roommate conflict, you follow Jesus there and allow him to fill you with his presence and to teach you his ways in that space, then the bigger things will reflect him as well. So Jesus, man, this is going way longer than I expected, 11.15, we're good, you guys good? Should I end it, babe? She's like, yeah. No, she didn't say that. I guess I'll end with, well, so Jesus gives us the how. Jesus gives us the how. How do we, how do, we do this? Well, the answer is in verse 19. Um, 
And it says this, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Remember in the first talk, um, do you guys see this fly? Is it just me? Okay, good. I'm just, I've had an issue in the past. Um, I see things. Um, mental health restored. Um, I'm not, you know it's true. <laughs> um, we put his words and his way into practice. This is what he invites his disciples to do. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Sermon on the Mount is bookends um, with healing stories, but it also talks about practicing the way and uh, someone who puts his words to practice will be like a wise man who builds a house on a good foundation. So the strategy for discipleship is not just right ideas, but it's right habits and practices. So Jesus wants us to embody and practice his words and his way and his lifestyle. So there's three ways we can talk about practices. We've done so much on spiritual disciplines. I'm gonna just speed through this and then we'll land. But one of the ways we can, um, is that we, we have practices based on the lifestyle of Jesus. So Jesus' lifestyle of fasting, silence and solitude, worship, Sabbath, prayer, listening, a simplicity. We can, we've done lots of lists of these. The second practice is that you should begin to incorporate into your life, which I'll define in a moment, are practices based on the teachings of Jesus. So take the Sermon on the Mount, um, things like loving your neighbor, do not worry about uh, uh, how you handle money, judgment, all the Bible one another's of what to do with one another. You put those into practice. The third thing is practices based on the ministry of Jesus. So we are, as disciples, um, to practice his ministry. So his ministry includes preaching and healing and proclaiming the gospel, deliverance of evil spirits, um, justice and compassion. We look in the scriptures and we look at Jesus as the model and we say we wanna practice lifestyle habits, we wanna practice the words he spoke, so his way, his words, and his ministry. You are invited in to make disciples of the nations, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. Greater works you will do, according to John chapter 13. Are you with me, church? So um, a discipline is any activity that I can do by practice or by direct effort that will eventually enable me to do that which currently I cannot do by direct effort. So a discipline is doing something that is not natural at first and I do it in a way over and over again so that eventually it will become natural. It's like we've talked about this, that if you wanna run a marathon, you don't start by running 20 miles, you start by running a half a mile then run a mile. And so when it comes to practicing the things of Jesus, the strategy is that we incorporate new ways, new habits to form our soul into Christ's likeness. We did an entire series called The Rule of Life, which is all about this. We've taught on spiritual disciplines. So if this is new to you, just look at the catalog of teachings we've done over the last 10 or 11 years as a church and we'll help you understand uh, how you can access power to be transformed into Christ's likeness. Um, I'm skipping a bunch of stuff for the sake of time. One of the reasons I have found it's hard to change. Anyone find it hard to change a habit or a pattern? One of the reasons I've realized that it's hard to change is that we are being shaped regularly um, by our love and longing. And I, th I read this quote this week and I was thinking about how fitting it is for the things we're talking about. That God's longing and desire is for us to be salt and light. His longings for your life, his desires for your life are to be the person you were designed to be by him. That has all sorts of implications. But our desires and our longings in our heart are not always aligned to God's, are they? 
So this is why you could desire, like, so this is why change is hard. You might long to be healthy, to look a certain way, but your habits have formed you over a lifetime and make that longing, it contests that longing. For example, I wanna be healthy, but after church on Sunday, I go to In-N-Out. Habit, right? That habit shapes my life and it contests the longing I really have. So at some point, you have to confront that longing and choose a new habit. So go get a salad instead of a burger. And we do this all the time. We want to be free from distractions, but we have email still on our phone. We want uh, work-life balance, but we never take a day off. We want to be transformed into God's love and be met by his longing, but we don't allow him to change our habits and our ideas of ourself. James K. Smith says, discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. Now our, in other words, our desires becomes God's desires. Our longings become God's longings so that when we wake up in the morning and we begin to interact in the world around us, we begin to pray things that Jesus would pray if he were in that situation. This is the goal of discipleship. This is where we're headed. This is what Jesus means in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not a killjoy. He's filled with abundance. You're called to be salt and light. How are you going to do that? Put Jesus' way, his words, his lifestyle, to practice. Can we dream for a moment as I close? I just thought of these questions as I was preparing. I want you to just think for a moment as you close your eyes. What are God's desires and longings for your life? What are God's desires and longings for your household? for your workplace, for your neighborhood? What would it look like to dream with God and to be shaped and formed in such a way that you naturally long for his longings? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. space for